Well, good morning. We're going to be back in the book of Matthew. Uh, so please be getting out your Bibles and turning with me to the book of Matthew. I really enjoyed studying for the promises lesson last week, and I'm looking forward to the future promises lessons. Uh, also looking forward to the Ephesian study that uh, we began last week, and we'll pick that up again tonight. Um, but there's a very powerful message in the study uh, that we're about to see this morning, uh, continuing where we left off last uh, two weeks ago in the book of Matthew. We've been studying through this whole book, and we're, we're making it into the latter half of the book uh, in Matthew 18, and we're learning a lot about discipleship. Jesus is teaching his disciples, helping them understand uh, what, what discipleship looks like, uh, and the lesson that we've been seeing is Jesus trying to reveal to his disciples that he must suffer and die, which is what we just studied about in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and they don't really like that idea. Uh, they're not a big fan of the idea of suffering and dying. And Jesus says that you also must do what I do. You must take up your cross and follow me. And he says, whoever loves his life will lose it for my sake, and then they'll find it. Uh, and they're, they're not really a big fan of that. Uh, and we saw that a lot in chapter 16 and 17. But now we get into chapter 18. Uh, and we've, we've just studied through the first four verses and saw who the greatest is. Uh, it's not uh, the most prominent, the most dominating, but it's a little child. And you remember how he, he, he illustrated this by having those disciples standing there. You imagine 12 men uh, standing there and say, and bringing a child and placing the child in the midst of these 12 men. And there's just this one little guy uh, in the middle of them. And he tells them, if you don't turn and become like this child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a strong statement of rebuke that they are trying to be great. And now Jesus is saying, you must be small, not, not great. You must lower yourself. You must lower your perception of yourself in order to be even in the kingdom. Uh, it's, a, it's a really strong text, and it's a hard text that we need to be thinking about often and be considering uh, in ourselves. And, and as we continue through this section, we're going to see that idea expanded on, and that's what we'll be studying about this morning. Uh, think about how life works a little bit as, as we begin. Uh, once we get to a certain level of understanding, a certain skill level, accomplishment level, uh, what do we tend to do toward those who haven't quite reached our stature? <laughs> do, we, do we look down and do we think, I, I really just need to help them and I need to lift them up so that they can be up here with me uh, and, and so that they can even go higher than me and think, uh, you know, of the well-being of someone else? Or are we critical of all those, uh, those who haven't made it this far? Are we critical of them? Do we look down on them? Because we are so high and so mighty. Uh, and, and, and we have accomplished so much. And we just look at them like, why haven't you accomplished this? It was easy. Uh, it's no big deal. You know, sometimes that might be our tendency. And, and we might do that in our jobs. We might do that uh, in our marriages and with our spouse. Like wondering why they're not as good as we are. Uh, and we might do that in the church building. And, and considering our brethren and thinking, why aren't you where I am? Uh, you, know, you should be just as righteous as I am. Uh, and doing all these righteous things that I'm doing. Uh, 
But really, as we, as we think about that a little bit, we start to see that we're assuming uh, a couple things. <laughs> we're assuming that we really are great, and we're assuming that they really are not. Uh, and Jesus is trying to help us understand those perceptions, those assumptions are a lot of times false. Uh, and as we study through this text, he's going to give us a lot of warnings to help us understand that. Let's start uh, by reading verse 5. He says, whoever receives one... Well, let's read verses 1 through 4 because we didn't read that. I just summarized it. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 5 says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What does he mean whenever he says one such child? Is he referring to children and saying you, whenever you receive children, then you're receiving me? Is that what he's referring to? Well, in the context, just think about this. He has just said, you disciples have to be children. And now he turns and says, anybody who receives one such child, a child, a, a, a humble disciple of mine, receives me. He's making a statement that, uh, that those who are humble disciples should be received by all. And, and they should be accepted and and. Jesus himself says, if you accept them, you're receiving me. Okay, so how do we receive humble disciples? Do we receive humble disciples? Uh, that's what Jesus is trying to say is you receive a humble disciple, it's like receiving Christ. Well, that sounds really good. Um, are we doing that? Are we receiving humble disciples? Uh, if we do, we're receiving Christ. Notice the next words. He starts into this threefold warning. Verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me... Notice he describes, defines what he means. He's not talking about just children. He's talking about those who are childlike, those who believe in Jesus, those who've humbled themselves. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him... To have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Ooh, that is a very strong statement of judgment against someone who, who, who takes this humble disciple, this, this little child, that, that's his perception of that, that person, and causes them to sin trips them up and, and convinces them to do something that they should not be doing and that they know they shouldn't be doing. He says, if you do that, you're worthy of, of drowning. A millstone is this big stone, big rock that's been chiseled to be round. And it would, it would go around the track and a donkey would usually pull it around the track and, and in that track they would lay the grain so that big heavy millstone would crush the grain for them. Imagine that huge, heavy, hundreds of pounds stone strapped around your neck and being thrown into the depth of the sea. You're going to drown. You can't bring that up to the top uh, because it might even outweigh you. Uh, so, so he's giving a very clear judgment against causing a humble disciple of Jesus's 
to sin. Do you see the protective nature of Jesus in this? That he wants to protect the humble children who are his. Those humble disciples. He says, if you cause them to sin, I will send you into the depth. It would be better if you were sent into the depth of the sea uh, with a millstone wrapped around your neck than have to deal with me after you're done. You kind of get the picture of uh, an angry, protective father. Uh, who's not real happy about his child being corrupted uh, by the evil of this world. Whenever I was younger, uh, probably about maybe nine or eight, uh, I'd go out to the ball fields and play t-ball or slow pitch or whatever it was at that time. I was horrible at it. Um, But while my brother was playing, I would just go out in the playground and play with other kids. And there's this sweet little cute three-year-old boy and his brother, and his brother was kind of wild, Uh, and some other kids, and man, they would just get that little boy to say all kinds of different things and to do all kinds of different things. Uh, And I was just like sitting there feeling like that's just evil. That's pure evil. And I was just like getting away from them. And and looking back on that, that just breaks my heart to know that a little three-year-old or four-year-old would just be twisted and manipulated and exposed to all kinds of evil that he's not really ready for. And and it just saddens me having a four-year-old and a six-year-old to, to think about someone coming in and, and manipulating and, and deceiving them and causing them to do something that they don't know is wrong or that they know is wrong that, uh, that they shouldn't do, but they're enticed and they're seduced into doing it anyway. Maybe it's disobeying mom and dad or, or, or hitting somebody or doing something really bad. It just makes me angry. It infuriates me. Uh, that someone would be so evil and and corrupt, something so innocent and so pure. You kind of see that in Jesus' words here. It would be better for them to have a millstone wrapped around their neck and thrown into the sea than to deal with the punishment that I'm bringing on that person. Pretty strong, protective words coming from Jesus uh, that, that are meant to leave an impression. But think about what he says. If you cause... One such child to sin. Consider how easy this is to cause someone to sin. You ever caused anyone to sin? You ever caused a, a believer uh, to sin and to do something that's evil, uh, that's, that's destructive, that goes against their conscience, that goes against what they know the word tells them to do or to not do? I mean, it's pretty easy to do, isn't it? I mean, we could do this directly by just gossiping with somebody. How, how easy is it to just speak evil of someone else and, and enter in, and engage in a form of gossip that would uh, cause someone to, to sin? We could speak unkind words to them and, and they would lash out at us and we'd be in a mix of words and we would have provoked them in some way or enticed someone to sexual immorality. We could entice someone to, to do something maybe that's not sin, sinful but that distracts them from the spiritual duties that they're supposed to be doing. I mean, there's so many different ways we could directly tempt somebody to do things that the world is doing it rampantly right now and we could do those same things. It's just easy to do. We could also do it indirectly. Uh, we could incite someone, kind of like Jezebel incites Ahab to do evil. Uh, spouses could easily incite one another. We know what button to push, don't we? Just, just got to say this word or bring up this, uh, this person or this, this thing. And I didn't, I didn't say anything bad. 
we know what we said. We know what we did. And we incite, uh, we, we indirectly tempt someone to, to respond in a way that is angry, that is uh, maybe full of anxieties, and that is evil. I mean, we know how to do it indirectly or directly. And those who are in our house especially, we can do that very easily. Uh, we can even do that with children uh, if, if we're just frustrated Right? We get frustrated and we just we want a reason to, to punish them for, for what they've done or something like that. I mean, we can just easily cause people to sin uh, as a form of vengeance or punishment. It can happen all the time. And here Jesus says, if you do that, it would have been better for you to be thrown into the depth of the sea with a millstone around your neck. That's terrifying. But what about this one? Is it possible to tempt others to sin just simply by failing to set an example of righteousness? By being a person who is a lukewarm Christian, are we tempting other people to be lukewarm Christians? By failing to, to set the example of holiness and living a disciplined and holy life for other Christians to see and to imitate, are we drawing people to a life of mediocrity? A life that doesn't really have devotion to the Lord, that is really just kind of devoted to comfort and to ease and to country club Christianity. Maybe that we're, we're tempting people to walk down that path because we ourselves are walking down that path. We're drawing them away from a devotion that's heartfelt, a, a love and a desire for God into a desire to just go through the motions. Not real righteousness, but just appearing righteous. Just lots of ways we can tempt people uh, to, to sin. And you think about inside of our own home. It's a really easy thing to fail to be truly righteous in our own home, to show holiness that, that's worthy of imitating, to fulfill the role of a husband, to lead the family in Christ as Christ loves the church, to love my spouse, to be sacrificial and patient and compassionate toward her. Uh, and, and what's that going to do to the spouse? Well, it's going to make it very difficult for her to, to be respectful toward the, the man uh, and to fulfill her role. So you see how that's going to result in temptations and sin. And as a wife, if, if you're unwilling to uh, submit to the, the role of the husband and the headship, you see how that might provoke the husband to have feelings of anger and anxiety and incompetence and, and, and might prevent him from taking the leadership role as you take it from him. As parents, uh, are we exemplifying the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord for our children to see God's graciousness and mercy and also his justice? See, we're tempting people all the time in all kinds of different ways. Uh, maybe directly, maybe indirectly, maybe just because we're not living out the life God's given us to live. We're tempting people to do what is unjust, what is evil, what is unrighteous, what is unholy. And it may be that those people are humble disciples of Christ. And as we do that, Christ is angry. 
to see the innocence taken away and the corruption taking place. So there's a strong warning here for us to consider as we think about how we might be tempting other people. That it's not just a light thing to tempt somebody. And it's not just something that we should just bypass and say, oh yeah, well, they should, they should be stronger and they should get over that. But it's something that I must seriously be careful about, that I am not tempting people to sin and that I'm doing my very best to set the right example for them to follow so that they might go down the right path and be led to a life that is a humble disciple of Christ. Second warning begins in verse 7. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Wow. Woe. We hear woe a lot in the, judges, in the, the prophets. And here he says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. He says, For it is necessary that temptations come... But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Well, that's kind of odd, isn't it? Uh, woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary that the temptations come, but woe to the one by whom it comes. We kind of wish that there was no temptation to sin. But he says it's necessary that temptations would come. Uh, that temptations are going to be out there and that there's going to be uh, a world pulling us to, to to sin. There's going to be people who pull us to sin. It's just part of life. Don't we wish it wasn't. You remember in the Lord's Prayer how he said, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, don't we wish that we could just live and never be tempted? Well, Jesus himself was tempted in the wilderness. So temptation is a part of life. And there's a number of things that are pulling at us and, and enticing us away from the Lord. And he brings this out and he says, woe to the world for the temptations that it offers. There's judgment coming to the world for tempting to sin. And he says, woe to the one by whom the temptations come. There's judgment coming for the one who tempts to sin. We need to think about this. What is enticing us to sin? There's temptations all around us, all the time. What is it that is tempting us and driving us to sin? Look at what he says in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Wow. I mean, those are so strong. We see all those back in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we see it again here. And you see these dramatic words uh, that, that says, if something is enticing you, if something is tempting you, cut it off and throw it away. Well, we just said that we are tempting others in some cases, and, and it may be that our spouse is tempting us. Are we supposed to cut them off and throw them away? Well, notice Jesus gives us two options, and, and it's not that we're supposed to cut off our spouse and throw it away. For those of you who are excited about that, I'm going to go ahead and crush that. Um, but, but notice Jesus gives us two options, that there are, there are, there's the world that's tempting us, and there's the spouses that are tempting us, uh, there's the people around us that are tempting us. There's all kinds of people and things that are tempting us. 
And his response is, you've got two options. You can keep it, and you can risk suffering for eternity. Or you can cut it off and enjoy eternal life. That's the two options that he gives. Now, in the case of a spouse, you're bound to the spouse, so cutting it off is not really an option. Uh, <laughs> unless there's sexual immorality, it's not really an option. But obviously, there is an understanding that if something in my life is enticing me to sin, then by keeping it, I risk suffering for all eternity. And he says, it's not worth it. Now, you expand out the temptations, whatever it is that's tempting you. Uh, television, uh, computers... Um, whatever it is, money, jobs, wealth, what does he say to do with it? Cut it off. He gives these images of cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, cutting out your eye. Now these are all just saying, this is something you greatly value. This is something you would hate to live life without. He says it's not worth keeping if you're going to be in eternal hell. It's not worth keeping. It's better to go into heaven without the foot, without the hand, without the eye. It's better to go into heaven without the wealth, without the prestige and the popularity. It's better to go into heaven empty and poor and broken in this life than to have it all and to go into hell. You see a very strong warning here against being tripped up by the temptations that are around you. First, he, he, he warns against those who might tempt people to sin that they will be judged. And then he warns those humble disciples against falling into temptation to sin. Last week we studied about the mercy of God and His forgiveness and His offering for our sin to be forgiven. And that offering is available to remove all of our sin. But it wasn't given to us so that we could persist in sin. It was given to us so that we might turn away from our sin and serve God as a humble disciple who wants to do the Father's will. And this is what He is calling for his disciples to do, to cut off the sin, to put away the sin in their lives, and to become righteous and holy, not tempting people to sin, not pushing people over the edge, not entering into and engaging in the sin ourselves, but being obedient and pure and holy. As the scripture that was read at the beginning says, if we are children of God then we should resemble God. We should put away sin and stop practicing sin because those who practice sin, those who pursue sin are of the devil. They are not of God who is good. Then he says in verse 10, another warning. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Again, little ones is a reference to the humble disciple. And what he says here is, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, why in the world would anyone despise a humble child of God, a humble disciple of Christ? Why would they ever do that? Well, think about it. They've been doing that in the book of Matthew. Remember earlier, uh, the Pharisees see that Jesus is accepting the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisee says, why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? Despising them. Well, they've, they've changed. They're humbled before Jesus and they're desiring to change. And yet the Pharisees in their self-righteousness look at this, uh, this tax collector and only see a sinner. And they despise these tax collectors. They, they despise these sinners who are coming to Jesus. And they think, there's no way they'll ever change. Why would you ever accept them? And, and in Luke 18, that picture of a, a, a Pharisee going to the temple to pray and saying, thank you, Lord, for not making me like this tax collector who's a horrible sinner. And the tax collector says, be merciful to me, Lord, a sinner. He's just, you just picture him weeping as he's crying out, realizing his, his, his destitute because of his sin. He's humble before the Lord. And Jesus says in that parable, the one who goes away, uh, who's justified, is the tax collector, not the Pharisee. But that Pharisee would detest and despise the sinner who would come humbly to God. And so here's a very strong warning for us. That as you read through this, you get the picture, God loves those horrible sinners who have humbled themselves and come to Him, asking for forgiveness. They are a little child to God. And, and if we despise them, He says, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Here you have a humble disciple who, who was a sinner who has now come and He's despised and, and we find out He has an angel before the face of God in heaven? What does that mean? It means God knows what's happened. He knows that a humbled child of His who was a horrible sinner, who has decided to change His ways and to come to God in submission, has been despised and rejected by men. And now He's astray. And how does God feel about the one who's astray? Well, good riddance. He's a horrible sinner anyway. He'd never change. No. He tells this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go and search for the sheep that went astray? And if he finds him, does he not rejoice over the return of the sheep who was lost more than over the 99 that never went astray? just gives us the perspective of God, how God sees the erring. He's not thinking, well, I'm so glad they're out of the picture. Now we can have this perfect group of 99 with no problems or blemishes or issues. He thinks, I've got to have the one back. That's all he cares about. He pursues the one who is this horrible sinner who all the rest of the sheep despise. He loves him. He wants him back. 
And he has a heart that desires his restoration. And this is what we see in the heart of God. The warning is, if you despise the one who is going astray, who is a humble servant wanting to serve God but has erred and, and made mistakes, then you are opposing God who desires all of his little children to be with him. So what do we learn? Hopefully we learn a lot in this. I've learned a lot in this. Um, first of all, you see, God receives the humble disciple. If we're humbled before him, if, if we're not seeking greatness uh, by our own efforts, by our own uh, stature, our own accomplishments, our own achievements, then we can be great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what he desires. He desires the humble to come to him and to receive forgiveness because we are all sinners who are not worthy of it, and this is the way we must perceive ourselves. We see that he will destroy those who tempt, those humble disciples who come to him. He is against those who tear down what he is trying to restore. You see the loving protection of God for all of his children. We also see in this that there's temptations that are constantly going on in our lives, that, that we're constantly battle against because uh, we live in the world and we're surrounded by evil people. Temptations are necessary. They are going to happen. We should see those temptations as an opportunity to glorify God and to grow stronger for God. God demands holiness at great sacrifice. We have to be willing to sacrifice much in order to abstain from the temptations and the sins that are in our lives in order to be faithful because if we enter into sin, if we go back into practicing sin, we give up on the life of holiness and pursuing the will of God, then there no longer remains a sacrifice as we learned about last week. It's worth getting rid of whatever's in your life that's tempting you. It's worth spending the time and the effort to, to develop your relationships with your spouse if they are tempting you or if you're tempting them. To overcome those things to make sure that there's no risk of entering into hell for all eternity. And then we see that our perception of others must be completely transformed. Our perception of ourself must be transformed to not think much of ourselves and look down on other people, but our perception of, of others must change with respect to God. Think about how God views someone who comes in this building who is a horrible sinner. Well, they've come in this building seeking, hopefully, restoration and help. In some cases, there's other, other motives. But if they're seeking any kind of help... Our desire should be God's desire to reach out and to bring them in. That's an easy one, right? Our desire should be even to leave the 99 and to bring back all those who are erring. That that is God's desire. He, he sent Jesus to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. And that should be why we're here as well.
So how are we doing against the battle uh, against pride? How are we doing in that battle? We think much of ourselves. Uh, how many of us want to be the greatest and want to know the most and direct the group to everything that uh, they, they're supposed to do or direct somebody else or tell everybody else what to do? It's not the picture at all of Christianity. Uh, not that we are uh, domineering, but that we are servants. How are we doing in our battle against temptation? We have to remain humble and recognize the sins that are inside of us and understand that it's only by God's grace that we will ever find forgiveness. But at the same time, we don't just say, oh, I'm a horrible sinner and, and I'm a mess and God loves me anyway and then act like we're not expected to change. The group here needs examples of holiness and righteousness. We need those who we can imitate in righteousness. We need elderships to be set up. And they're supposed to be who we imitate, who we follow after. The, the example of those who have led a honest, a sincere, a holy, a blameless life. We need examples like that in more than elderships. We need it everywhere. Because the world is showing us darkness. And we need light. How are we doing on loving the erring? I know that a lot has happened in the last year. Uh, I know that there's a lot of you tuning in online that uh, we've maybe failed at connecting with in some way. Uh, there's a lot here who uh, maybe for a time you, you had some temptations to just stay at home even though you weren't really scared of the virus and you weren't really uh, you know, feeling bad and it just kind of seemed more comfortable to just stay at home and watch on TV and and you just like that better, even though we're supposed to be here, if, if possible, encouraging one another, setting the righteous example for one another. Um, maybe some of you didn't really have an excuse or a reason. You just thought, oh, this would be easier. I can watch while I'm on my way to the golf course or something like that. Now, there's a lot of temptations that are going on out there. And as we're coming here, maybe we're tempted to think, well, we're more righteous than they are and, and just kind of look down our noses at them and think, well, they should know better. They should do better. Ugh, uh, I'm glad they're gone. Whatever. And how do we feel about the fringe members who are disappearing on us? You see how our eyes need to be tuned to look at those who are struggling to try to help and bring them in. This is so hard for us to do today because we feel very satisfied with the 99. <laughs> We're comfortable in here with all these others who are doing all these same things as us and, and, and it's just easy to be satisfied with that. And really going out to find the lost, that's hard work and I don't really want to do that. And I didn't really connect with them anyway, so I don't really want to get to know them anyway. And it's even hard to rejoice when one who is, uh, who is erring hints at maybe coming back, to rejoice at them coming back instead of looking down on them and saying, where you been? Thinking that maybe because they're not attending and that they're online, that somehow they're unfaithful, that they don't love the Lord, that they're not really striving to please Him and do His will. It's easy for us to think that way and despise them. But are they humble children of God? How does God feel about them? We have to be very careful that we're not self-righteous, 
and that we're not uh, hateful and despising those who God loves. We're not so great. We must think less of ourselves. And I'll tell you, I've fallen into many temptations in the last year of many different kinds. And I understand all that. And I think we all need to be understanding of those things. We need to remember that our Father is constantly watching and constantly seeking those who are lost. That's His heart's desire. And that must be our heart's desire as well. No matter what they've done in the past, no matter who they are, uh, if they decide to humble themselves and turn to God, the picture is God rejoicing over the change of their heart and extending His mercy for them to receive. If you're here this morning and you are desiring to be made right, desiring to come to God, I want you to understand He accepts you, He wants you. If you're here, if you're here and erring, or if you're tuning in and erring, or if, or if there's somebody else out there who we know of who's erring, we need to understand God is heartbroken over their situation. We want to draw people in. We want to heal their wounds. We want to comfort them. We want to rejoice over their restoration. We don't want to look down on them and feel better about ourselves. Let's make this our practice. As little children with a loving father. If you're here this morning and we can do anything to help you, please don't delay. Please come forward so that there can be rejoicing over any, any change that you're wanting to make and there can be prayers for help uh, if you have need. Please come as we stand and as we sing.